Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm João Sotomayor, a PhD candidate in Sociology of Education at the New York University. And I'm your host for today's episode. We'll be talking to Professor Cassidy Puckett in her new book, Redefining Geek, Bias and the Five Hidden Habits of Tech-Savvy Teens, recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Cassidy is an assistant professor of sociology at Emory University. Drawing on mixed methods approach, her book identifies, describes, and measures Five Learning Habits That Enable Tech-Savvy Teens to Learn New Technologies. The book offers concrete, practical tools and advice to make technology learning more equitable, revealing how being good with technology is not about natural ability, but about habit and persistence. The book speaks to the ongoing conversation on equity technology education and argues for a more inclusive technology learning experience for all students. Cassidy, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. <laughs> great. So uh, my usual first question is that uh, I wonder if you would begin this interview by saying a few words about yourself, uh, your academic background, and your academic interests. Um, sure. So I am, as you said, a sociologist. That's I got my training, uh, uh, my PhD in sociology. Um, but my academic background before that was in um, learning sciences. So I got my master's in education at Stanford's learning design and technology program. And before that, um, I got my uh, bachelor's in American studies and Latin American studies. So I had a little bit of a history background. Um, I was interested in becoming maybe a, a, a photojournalist. I had a real um, passion for the arts. And that's actually how I got into <laughs> technology was through the arts. Um, so that was that was the origin story uh, for me was more of an artistic and an interest in history um, that that got me into this project. Yeah, that's great. And can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the idea for, for this particular book and where that that came from? Well, um, so, you know, I was pursuing those interests in, in history and, and in technology and, and um, photography and new media. And this was the early 2000s. And I was, you know, increasingly interested in web design technology. Um, I, right out of college, um, got an AmeriCorps job at a historical park in Oakland, California. And we were working with a nearby very large middle school um, called Calvin Simmons Middle School. And I started working with an after-school program there called Urban Arts Academy. They were doing all kinds of creative stuff and I just loved working with them. And eventually went with the group of teachers who had that um, after-school program, they created a new small school. And in the meantime, I was learning about technology and I got this grant to learn um, about technology and then also teach it. 
So then I started teaching technology classes, but I was still, you know, in the process of learning, what is this new field? And the field of um, especially web design was really like, you know, emerging um, at the time. And so I was looking for standards and I was looking for ways of understanding my students' learning. And so I started, and the first chapter of the book actually is a inquiry project that I did as a teacher. Um, I was teaching a web design class that year just happened to be all girls. And I was really curious, okay, we've got all girls in this class and what's going on and why do some of the girls pick things up real quick and others don't? And so that's that's the the beginning of of the this actual project and even some of the material, <laughs> which is amazing. But um, I, I started writing, and collecting data from my students. And that's what I used um, to begin the book. Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, that's a great place to start. Uh, so uh, in the beginning of the book, in the first chapter, like you said, uh, you described some of the challenges you faced as a teacher in technology classes. Can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Um, you know, there were these big debates about the digital divide at the time. And as a teacher, I wanted to, you know, okay, so, you know, if we have this digital divide, it's, you know, really inequitable. Even at the time already, we knew that there were these problems in technology occupations and technology fields. Um, so that was one of my goals was, of course, to to change the face of um, of industry and of who is leading technological innovation in the country. The other thing is that I, I was a teacher and I wanted to you know understand my learning goals and what it means to be good with technology. So I, what I did was I went to um, I went to the standards, which was a huge movement um, already um, of, you know, spelling out what all of the standards are and having assessments for those standards. And so I thought, all right, there's got to be something out there about technology already. I'm just stepping in and, and, and pulling it together for my class. Well, when I went to go look at standards for technology learning, there, there was quite a lot, <laughs> like way more than I thought I would find. Um, but one of the things that I noticed was that they really talked about these these different things that were coming from industry. They were coming from uh, researchers. They were coming from policymakers. They really focused on literacies and skills, and those things are very important. Obviously, right? You you have to like be skilled in order to and be literate in order to understand technologies, but. The main thing about technologies and the main challenge with them really is that they change. So, you know, you get questions from teachers about, well, do I teach a kid PowerPoint when tomorrow it's going to be, you know, a different version of PowerPoint um, or they might not ever have to use PowerPoint. They might have to use some other, you know, maybe it's Python and then it's R and then it's et cetera, et cetera. You could go in many directions with this. And so that encapsulated what I was looking at, which was that technology changes and none of these standards that I was looking at, these learning goals for my students talked about that ability to learn and adapt and continually develop new skills and literacies. And so I knew that I had to look deeper and I had to really understand what it means to be good with technology that takes that technological change into account. So that's that's where it all started. And also understanding those differences among my students. Um, you know, the, the digital divide uh, research at the time really suggested it was about access, um, you know, maybe differences at home. And I looked into that. <laughs> I looked into that with surveys with my students and interviews with my students. Already I was using mixed methods as a teacher, <laughs> just beginning to learn all of that. And, um, and I didn't see anything conclusive, but um, 
but I was talking and especially with this one student named Cindy, um, and I should say that that my students gave me permission to to use their names uh, in the book. And, um, uh, you know, Cindy uh, said to me, you know, you just you don't give up and you try to understand the technology. Um, and even when you're frustrated. So she was already spelling out that it took these these um, very particular habits when you were encountering new technologies. And so I knew right away that I was I was onto something, but I wasn't there yet. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that that's very interesting. Uh, so that's one of the central uh, lines of investigation motivating your book, right? Trying to identify what allows uh, students to to learn technologies. Um, but another line uh, that you that you argue uh, in the beginning of the book it has to do with the the common associations between technological ability and characteristics such as race, uh, sex, and, and class, uh, right? So can you can you maybe tell us a little bit more about this this discussion that existed in this common misconception that motivated your investigation? Yeah, well, this this idea, the archetype of sort of what, you know, who is technologically competent, what that means. I mean, part of the problem is that we don't really understand what it means to be good with technology. And so these these, um, uh, you know, irrelevant <laughs> cues and biased ideas sort of creep in when we're really not understanding what it means to be good at something. And so instead, we can attach it to um, uh, to things like race and class and gender. Um, and, and one of the things that gets circulated in popular media, um, and, and even in research is that there are types of people who are good with technology. So it, the, that idea, you know, the archetype that I say all the time and people are like, oh yeah, yeah. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Right. And and there's this just idea that it's that being good with technology is something that you're born with or you're not. Right. And so that notion makes it seem like there's no learning involved. It also makes it seem like the people who are in industry and who have been in industry for a very long time um, uh are the only ones with this ability. Like they were somehow like out of the womb, born with, <laughs> born with a technological ability. Um, and so that would be largely white male, more affluent. Um, uh, sometimes Asian males get included in there too. Um, although research shows only to a certain extent, maybe not as much in leadership. And so there's a, there's a ceiling there. Um, and then the third thing that it does is, you know, that assumption is that it makes it seem like everybody else who isn't involved in, you know, isn't as quote unquote represented in technology fields and in education, um, you know, that they just, they don't have the talent. <laughs> and my research shows that none of those things are true. Um, I really think that we have been looking for this. Um, I think it's not an assumption that we that we want to follow, um, but we don't know how to get out of it without um, without research showing us a different way of thinking. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So now let's let's move to the your investigation, right? So I'm I'm quoting for your book here when I say that your research question was, what does it mean to be good with technology, and how can I help my students achieve, and how can I ensure that others recognize their potential, right? So I think it's a very uh, clearly stated question, uh, and because a lot of our listeners are involved with research in some way or another, maybe it makes sense to talk about methods a bit. Uh, so what was your a strategy to try to to answer this question. So, um, I think I was really naive as a grad student because every time I would encounter a method, I'd be like, "I'm going to do it," <laughs> right? <laughs> and the the problem with that I started with is that, so you know, I had um, this this um, concept that I was trying to develop. At first, I was calling it persistence, 
but in education, we use persistence in a very particular way. It usually means like a completion of a grade level or you get, you know, a diploma. That's persistence. But what I was talking about was persistence during the learning process. And I was trying to understand, okay, so what helps people to continue to learn? Um, and that's different than how we were using persistence. So I was, I was um, grappling with a, with, a, with a concept that really wasn't well articulated in literature. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we have these arguments in sociology about like, well, what do you mean by gender? How do you operationalize it? What do you mean by race? How do you operationalize it? But there isn't a fundamental questioning of there is this thing you know, of, of race, there isn't this, there is this thing of social class, right there. Um, when I, when I talk about persistence and learning, it's kind of like, well, <laughs> what, what is that? Um, and what is it, you know, the, just the idea of what does it mean to be good with technology? So I, I went textbook methods on this, which is you have to go and you have to study it and you have to study it among, um, the first step is, is either, going to the research literature and seeing what people have said about technological expertise. Um, and, and when I saw that it was about skills and literacies, it just wasn't, it wasn't meeting what I um, was already observing in my teaching and, um, and knowing about technology and the nature of technological change. And so what I really needed to do was go to the people who were not just experts, um, because I could have gone into industry thinking, okay, these people are certified, you know, tech experts. Um, what I needed instead was to go to expert learners, right? And to get cl as close as I could to the learning process. And so, um, so what I did was I went to these award-winning technology programs all across the country that I knew about because they were the model for how I taught my technology classes. And I also got you know, recommendations to different programs all across the country. So I already knew that these incredibly tech-savvy teens um, who were very close to the learning process, you know, that they could, they could tell us something. The other thing is that it's really important. And I think methodologists, um, you know, are increasingly um, being pushed in this direction of thinking about how is, how are inequities um, being embedded into the, into the methodological process, right? So if you're, if you're, Assuming that people who are tech experts are only those who are in technology fields, you're going to go and study a lot of white men, affluent men, right? Um, and and get a very thin slice of what expertise looks like. So my measure and my goal was to really understand this from the broader, <laughs> the the very diverse um, group of people who are good at technology learning. And so that's another reason why I went to these programs because they served they serve an incredibly diverse group of of teens and you, you gotta you have to wonder, okay, so where do they go? <laughs> right? Why are they not in tech fields? And that's something that my that my study grapples with. So I went to those those spaces with the assumption that there was expertise in the room, something that I could learn from. And and in that sense, I was norming my um, this this concept of technological expertise with the group that I knew was more representative, the full range of who that includes, right? So that was really important in my methods. Um, then I did a whole bunch of <laughs> really technical stuff. Um, so I had a, had a big list of habits and I, um, and when I was looking for those habits, I was looking for thoughts, feelings, and actions. And I know that you're going to ask me about habits in a minute, so I'll, I'll save more of that that explanation for later. So I I really asked about those different dimensions of of learning habits, um, and then I I translated those into um, a, a, a survey items, 
where it's a statement that says, you know, um, when I'm learning a new technology, let's see if I can get the items right. When I'm learning new technology, I always look for um, the fastest way of of doing something. Um, for example, I think that it was probably wrong, but um, but close enough. So these items were translations of the different habits that I saw. And there was quite a lot of them. Um, so this is classic um, scale development things that I was doing. Um, and I brought those to a team of experts in survey research and in, in, in technology. I got all kinds of advice on how to pilot it. I went and I piloted with kids. I did um, cognitive interviews where they interpreted the different items. Um, I, I piloted items. I did factor analysis to narrow down the number of habits and the number of items. Um, and then I did a big stratified uh, stratified random sample of, um, it was schools that were stratified by their Title I status, so higher and lower income schools, um, serving eighth grade students in Chicago. Um, I surveyed almost 900 students in 27 schools and did further analysis. And then I also replicated this in a school district just outside of Boston. So there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of methods going on. And then I also did like a sub-study in the survey where I used different language, like very specific technology terms, <clears throat> excuse me, specific technology terms, just to make sure that the language was, was appropriate. Um, and then I also did this like, um, sub uh, subsample of students who are higher and lower on the scale to see, all right, so what does this look like in practice? And I had them do a performance task, learning scratch. So it was just, you know, every single, every single method I could possibly um, throw at this project. I did it. It took many years to do that. <laughs> So I wouldn't uh, necessarily recommend it, um, but you know what? The the research question called for it, and um, fortunately, I had a lot of opportunities. I went to ICPSR at University of Michigan um, to learn a bunch about structural equation modeling, and uh, you know, I learned survey research and in, in in you know at Northwestern in communications. There was some wonderful faculty there, so I just took advantage of everything that was around me, um, and put it all into my study. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fascinating. That's a whole comprehensive list of, of methods and the available tools to us uh, right there. Uh, and that's one of one of the reasons why the book is really, it's really fascinating and it does a, a great job of, of answering uh, this very interesting and important question. Uh, so now let's well, maybe, yeah, I will say go ahead, go ahead. The other thing I will say is that most of that is not, I mean, that's very dry for most people other than, um, uh, you know, us researchers, right? So I put a very detailed um, methods appendix in the book um, where I describe all of those steps. Um, and I've got articles that, you know, talk about, especially the development of the digital adaptability scale, the quantitative uh, measure. Yeah. So it's all in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I should note that too, that the book is, even though it's very technical, the book is easy to read. So for those of you who might feel intimidated from all these technological approaches that uh, she just, just described, the book, the, the reading really flows very well and it, it, uh, the methods are placed in strategic places that don't feel overwhelming. So that's, yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so maybe focusing on uh, some of the findings that you have, you really focus on this concept of habits, right? And and I wonder uh, first why you focused on habits, and and second, what what do you mean by it? So this is such a great question. Of course, as sociologists, we come across this concept of of habits in in theorizing. So. Of course, Bourdieu has the concept of habitus, and that was something I was very um, uh, interested in as a grad student. Um, you know, what does it mean to embody a, a form of, of, of capital, right? So um, uh, 
I, I really wanted to understand that and understand, all right, is this a technological habitus? Um, in, in the learning sciences where I came from, habits are uh, very central. And so I saw an overlap, a disciplinary overlap between um, sort of cognitive researchers and sociology in the form of habits. Um, then the other thing is that we know that habits are, are often very, can be very closely tied to social class and, um, uh, you know, class markers in the ways that, that habits are um, displayed. So Thornsey uh, uh, Veblen uh, use this, uses this <clears throat> to talk about conspicuous consumption, for example. Um, and so that was something that I was seeing from the disciplinary areas that I that I was trained in, that habits can be really important. Um, they can tell you something about, you know, how we differentiate between different people. And certainly we can they can tell you something about how how to differentiate between, um, you know, uh, people who are more and less expert with with technology. Um they can also tell you something about inequality. So they can tell you what things are noticed and observed and rewarded and what things are not. Um, so Du Bois, for example, talks about the, um, the veil and the ways that people will see, um, uh, you know, black people as, as less skilled and, you know, that is telling you something in terms of habit about society, what they will and will not see, what they white society, what they will and will not see, what they um, reward and will not reward. Um, and and so all of these things come together in this um, in this form of habits. But I don't think that they often get tied together, that learning um, and the process of learning and then how they're viewed, how those habits are viewed and rewarded are all tied up in questions of inequality. And so that's why I put them as as quite central to my investigation. Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. Uh, so you focus on five key habits that matter for technology learning. Um, could you maybe walk us through uh, what they are and describe a little bit about how they matter for student learning? Yes. So this is, um, you know, of course, after all of the, <laughs> after all of that, um, those methods, these were the five that I landed on. And, um, and this was, you know, studying these very diverse group of, of tech savvy teens. And so, um, what I landed on was five habits. The first three are general ones that could help in any area of learning. And those are a willingness to try and fail, um, management of frustration and boredom, and then using uh, information and people as models in the learning process. And the other two habits are um, technology specific. And those two are something that I call design logic, which is thinking about why technology is designed the way that it is and how that relates to what you want to do with it. And then finally, something I call efficiencies. And those are fast, faster ways of using technology like keyboard commands. Um, and of course, all of those, even the general habits, look a particular way when um, when learning new technologies. So, for example, uh, you know, a willingness to try and fail um, really means like celebrating failure and managing your frustration and boredom means understanding that at any given time, you're going to be terrible um, at what you're doing. And that actually means that you're doing a good job, <laughs> right? So there was this one um, student named Jeffrey. He was at Bayback Game Design in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And he was just like, you're going to suck. <laughs> and I loved that. I loved the wisdom wisdom that these students have about their learning process 
And, and he was basically saying, you know what, like technology is always new. You're always going to encounter something. You're going to suck at it. And that's just a part of the process. And that if you continue to face it, like that is good. And, and everyone in these programs would really celebrate failure. Oh, look what I did. It was just terrible. Look, I'm going to fail again. And they would just keep on going. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I, I wonder also if you could expand a little bit more about the technology specific habits that you mentioned, uh, specifically the design, what, what do you call the design logic? I think that's a, a fairly interesting one uh, that maybe it's not uh, that clear from the name because it's a little more specific, right? So I wonder if you could describe uh, what that means and maybe give some some examples in 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 practice of what that might look like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the two uh, you know technology specific ones are ones that I really hadn't um, to a certain extent. Design logic um, has been des described a little bit by. Um, uh, learning scientists, they have a something called design grammar that's um, Jim G um, talks about. But, um, you know, so it's understanding that technology is a designed system, and then trying to tease out, all right, so, you know, what is it about the, like, why was this designed the way that it was? And many of the programs that I went to, they were, you know, they could fall under the rubric of what's now called STEAM, so including arts education, because quite a lot of arts education includes pretty detailed and, and high-level technology. So I went into, you know, um, audio production uh, uh, um, uh, classes, um, and what you would see is um, kids and instructors really talking about, okay, so, you know, why is this designed the way that it is? And one of the things that happens in technology quite a bit is something called skeuomorphic design. And what that means is a technology is designed to relate to a physical object, <laughs> right? And sometimes, especially at this point, um, those objects don't exist anymore, or they're, they're only true for like, adult, you know, older, much older generations, um, even, you know, think of, think of a desktop, think of those, you know, files in a filing cabinet, right? That's a very specific framework for thinking about why a technology is, is designed the way that it is and how, excuse me, and how it works. So that is something that every single technology learner really has to tease out, whether they're totally aware that they're doing it or not. And um, uh, it was something that I saw all the time in these programs and with what kids were learning is that they would say, okay, so this is supposed to be, you know, this physical object. And so like in some of these programs, you would have to rotate as though it's like a rack of equipment, rotate it to the back and then plug in different things, not not physically, but virtually um, do those actions in the software to get it to work correctly. Um, and then understanding that design thinking, okay, can I do this thing that I wanted to do with it? Um, and there, there's a lot of people who, who once they understand the design, they can figure out hacks, right? <laughs> they can figure out ways of, of making it work. I had a friend who used to joke that he could make um, Excel fetch him coffee, right? It's not what it's, you know, obviously that's a joke, but it's, you know, thinking about, all right, it, this might not be its original design purpose, but, but because I understand that design, I, I can do these really creative things with it. The other one, efficiencies, you know, I did not think that this would be such a big deal, um, but every single program would talk about keyboard commands, especially, um, and, and ways that you can use technology in, in a faster way. And so what that does is it really offloads your thinking. You don't have to think as much if you're if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I know that there's some shortcuts here. I'm going to look for them. It might be shortcuts through the use of models. It might be shortcuts that you learned from other software, but maybe not. Um, or or things like going from a Mac to a PC, right? Okay, I know that they're, they're here somewhere. Where are they? Or every time that your software changes, like, I knew I used to be able to do this and now it's not here. And so I need to find that that shortcut. 
it turns out that those are really, really important for learning. Um, kids told me, uh, if I remember correctly, it was uh, kidney BC, uh, who I call BC, in uh, Global Kids, which is a program in um, New York City. Um, he said to me, it just, it makes learning faster. Like if you know those shortcuts, it also signals that you're a part of this technological community, right? You're part of the insider club. You've got the tricks and those tricks are not always um, available, right? They, the, sometimes in drop down menus, it'll give you some ideas about where to go for those shortcuts. But a lot of technologies are designed with the shortcuts embedded in them. And you have to look at manuals, you have to ask other people, you really have to dig in order to find all of the shortcuts. Some programs have so many shortcuts that they actually make skins to go across your keyboard so that you can use the software. It's incredible. Um, and so that was uh, the, you know, the last thing that, that I, and I realized after looking at my notes more closely that it was, you know, every other um, sentence was <laughs> was about like, you know, make sure you save, hit, you know, what whatever uh, keyboard you might be working with, let's say Apple S or, um, uh, you know, so so you you would hear this kind of constant hum about the the shortcuts, and. Um, uh, so that became something that I realized was was really important to technology learning. Yeah, that's great. I think I, I found those particularly fascinating, specifically the design logic, that idea of trying to to understand what the program is supposed to do instead of confronting it, instead of saying, okay, why doesn't it do what I want it to do? You try to understand what it's supposed, how it's supposed to operate and try to use it in the way it was designed for. So yeah, I find, I find this one particularly um, interesting and it's a great insight from, from your book. Uh, so in the book, you not only identify those habits, and describe them in detail, but you also measure them as you described a little bit earlier. Uh, and you use this, what do you call it? Digital adaptability scale. Um, maybe we, we, we don't need to go into too much technical detail, but it's uh, from from my, my understanding of the book, it's basically uh, a, a, um, a scale measure to try to combine those habits and, and measure these uh, in, in more detail and used for some specific investigations, right? Uh, and maybe if you want to say something uh, more about that, please feel free. But the question I wanted to ask is, uh, in your investigations, you use that scale to answer more specific questions, in particular, uh, questions related to how the development of those habits might differ across uh, gender or racial groups. Right. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you find. Yeah. So that's such a great question. So, you know, as a teacher, if I just understood those habits, like, all right, this is great. Um, now I can teach them. Right. Except that it doesn't help you to see them. It doesn't help you to figure out, all right, you know, um, how do my students differ in these habits? If you had them sit down and try to learn something new, for example, you might be sort of stuck. It took me a really long time to be able to see them um, in practice. And so the measure is, you know, I'm, I, I am a little skeptical about quantitative measures because I know how much bias can be introduced um, historically, um, especially in technology. Actually, there's a historian named um Nathan Ensminger, who talks uh, in his book, uh, uh, The Computer Boys Take Over, about the kinds of measures that actually were introduced into computing to understand, um, you know, what kind of personality is, is good with computing and the ways that those measures actually pushed women out of computing um, in its early history. So I understand that these measures can be terrible, <laughs> right? I wanted to make sure to avoid that, of course, as I talked about before. Um, but I also needed something to understand differences. And, um, you know, and this this comes from, uh, of course, um, sociology wanting to understand inequality um, and 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 just a practical um, kind of a perspective on on how can I make a tool that's really useful for um, educators and for researchers. Um, and so I, I, I developed that scale and um, I landed on 
um, you know, after, as you heard, <laughs> quite a lot of study um, of it, I, I landed on a 15 item scale that's basically a bunch of statements. Uh, you know, kids rate themselves. It's like, this is like me or not like me. Um, and uh, it takes about five minutes for, for, for kids to fill it out. And um, what you can understand from it is really interesting. Um, and so what I found, so I looked at gender differences um, and, and racial and ethnic differences and social class differences, just to see, are, are there differences? And, and, and number one, do these, do these habits vary at all? Because I could be going down, this is the really scary thing about research is that you might be headed down a path where you put in a lot of effort and you get nothing, <laughs> right? So, so that was the big thing is, do they even vary? And sure enough, they did. Um, so I could, I could see that from my survey in Chicago that um, on this scale, there was quite a bit of variation. They did trend in a positive direction, which is what there is the sort of assumption about people born into the digital age, that they're just great with technology. Well, I knew that wasn't true, um, that not everybody uh, uh, is great with technology, um, but there is a trend in the positive direction. So that sort of like matches that idea that yes, maybe um, younger generations are a little bit better with technology, but there's a lot um, of, of room to learn. Then I looked at gender and there I, I did find significant differences um, and uh, between uh, male students and female students. I did also ask, forgive the binary, I did also ask um, uh, for, you know, people to identify as, you know, um, whatever gender that they wished and and no one identified as anything other than male or female. Um, and what that showed me was that there were these significant differences. But, you know, I I could look at the, at the um, uh, distribution of of uh, the habits, the 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 ratings on the DAS, um, you know, among female students, among male students, and I could see that they were quite close there, right? So, but there were these significant differences. So that said to me, it didn't really show me what was going on. And so what I did was I then looked by each of the five habits, and I said, all right. Are there differences in a willingness to try and fail? Because there's often a lot of assumptions about girls being, quote, scared of technology. And so there should probably be the significant differences in that one um, in that one habit. There were not. Then I looked at, all right, management of frustration and boredom. Maybe girls get get um, more frustrated or, or something in the learning process. And that's where the differences emerge again not true. <laughs> you know, and then I kept on going. Okay, so so how about use of models? Um no, there were no gender differences. Where I found those gender differences were in the two technology specific habits, design logic and efficiencies. And I really that rang really like true to me uh intuitively because what it um, suggested to me is that they're not girls are not getting access to the insider tricks, right? So the the design logic might be quite hidden unless you have somebody who's there explicitly telling you, you know, this is why it was designed the way it is, and and especially efficiencies, right? There's all these tricks, and of course we do know that, um, uh, for example, um boys will play video games at much uh, higher rates than, than girls. That's been historically true for a while now. And, um, and they're working on it in industry, but um, uh, you know, in video games, you have to use a lot of little tricks where you um, hit certain things in a certain way in order to do this certain move or get to the next level or use cheat codes. There's all of these efficiencies embedded in, um, in things like video gaming. And so, and that's very explicit and very like fun and entertaining and you can share them among your peers. Um, and so that's one of the things that I see in that gender finding is that there um, is likely gatekeeping going on where girls are not getting access 
to the insider tricks. Um, it might not be on purpose, but there's not, you know, um, equal sharing and equal access to that information. Um, the other thing that I found with racial and socioeconomic uh, differences, if there were any, um, I looked at that. So group differences by race, ethnicity, and social class. And, you know, the digital divide narratives would would suggest that I would find differences, right? There's issues of access, there's issues of different levels of skill, and this is why we don't see um, Black, Brown, Indigenous uh, groups in tech education and occupations. Well, guess what? <laughs> I found no significant differences by race, ethnicity, or social class. And that's a, to me, that tells a different story, but still one of gatekeeping where clearly, you know, huge swaths of very talented people are not getting recognized for that talent. It's the Du Bois uh, uh, framework there, right? Where you have people who are quite capable and they're being excluded from um, these uh, uh, there, I mean, it's, it's a structured racism and classism. They're not being, uh, uh, you know, essentially credentialed in things that they are quite capable of doing. And so that is, um, that is the finding for, for race and class. And it really pushes back on this idea of, um, of, you know, a deficit, which is what the digital divide you know, rhetoric tells us to think is that, oh, these poor people, they really need to be upskilled and et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I never believed it. <laughs> and my research doesn't bear out that, that story. Um, and, you know, historically, that's is also has not been true for a very long time. So there's research by um, uh, Charlton McIlwain, um, at NYU, um, who wrote a book called um, Black Software. And it was all about how um, there were Black pioneers in technology fields at the very beginning of the emergence of, of the internet. And they laid the foundation for racial, racial justice activism that we see today. Um, you know, I also, in doing research for my book, came across um, uh uh, archivist who found in Ebony magazine from 1959 to 1969 that they featured um, 57 um, black professionals who worked in um, computing fields, but they were not represented in official labor records. So it's actually this like washing away and this non-recognition of the skill that is so present um, and has been present and is, you know, present today. Um, studies out of Stanford, very recent studies, 2019, show that as Latinx um, uh, groups uh uh, you know, earn computer science degrees, they continue to be less represented in um, technology fields in terms of hiring, right? So it's it's even with credentials <laughs> that there's this benefit that is not um, uh, accruing for, for groups that are continually pushed out. And I think that it's because um, we really don't understand what it means to be good with technology and who that includes today and has always included. Um, and so that's, those are the big takeaways um, from those, from those findings. Yeah, 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 that, that's fascinating. And you really focus on this idea of gatekeeping, right? So the idea that uh, there are uh, practices or maybe unspoken rules or maybe formal rules that prevent some particular students from actually, you know, learning the, the technological skills. Um, could you maybe uh, describe that idea of gatekeeping a little in a little more detail? I think I feel like that's a very interesting uh, insight from your book as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's one of the things that that someone might ask is like, well, why the heck, <laughs> why the heck would this be a problem? Like, why would we 
um, uh, you know, dominant culture, white culture? Why would it make sense to push out and, and male culture, uh, since so few women are represented in tech fields? You know, why would and, and historians also talk about the ways that women were pushed out of of computing in the early days. Um, and, you know, why would that happen? Right. Like, it's not to our benefit. It seems quite, you know, uh, apparent right on the face of it. Um, why would we ever gatekeep in that way? And um, and the answer that I pose in the book, and I pose this argument very early on and then sort of swing back around to it, which is that we, you know, the reason that that happens in technology education and technology fields is the same reason that it happens in education in general, which is our current focus um, largely on social mobility. Now, social mobility is the idea that education is supposed to help you, <laughs> and it seems like a good idea, um, it's supposed to help you to move up in the world, except that it's really predicated on competition, <laughs> right? So it's an individualized idea that education is going to help you to compete. And in that system, someone has to win and someone has to fail. Always. That is the way that it works exactly as designed. And entering that system, there are already people in positions of advantage who are fighting really hard to hold on to their advantage, right? So if we if we really lean into individualized competition, what can what can education do for me? And specifically the credentials, not necessarily the learning, right? You don't even have to learn. Um, you can just like figure out a way to game the system to get the credential. And then, you know, I've got my Harvard degree or what have you, and then get ahead of other people. That is why we see so much of this, you know, um, gatekeeping and exclusionary practice is because we've mapped technology, you know, education onto the ways that we already, that education already works. And, and so the fact that we end up with a very unequal society and unequal, you know, occupational fields, et cetera, that's just the system working the way that it's supposed to be working. And so we really have to fight against that is, is my, my big conclusion in the book. Um, we really have to fight against that urge. Um, and in, in technology education, the way that I've seen it in sort of at the micro level is um, teachers treating technology as a sort of reward for the good kids, right? So um, I saw this one kid, I call him Tomas. He was not actually a student that I followed. Um, uh, he was he was someone who I came across while I was following other students. And he was constantly like late to school and causing a ruckus in the back of the room and kind of dancing in the hallway and definitely, you know, marching to the beat of his own drummer. Um, his teachers would mostly yell at him. And he was definitely not identified as technologically savvy and was not someone who teachers sort of pointed me towards in my study. Um, and it turned out one day we were standing in line getting ready to go into a classroom. And it turned out that his friends were like, well, why didn't you talk to Tomas about, <laughs> about technology learning if you're interested in people who are really into it? And I was like, Tomas? <laughs> Why? Why would I talk to Tomas? And he turns around, and he's kind of like, well, yeah, I, you know, I've, I'm programming in C at home. And right now I have the blue screen of death. And he's like, you know, again, you know, being super uh, excited for his failure. Um, he thinks it's a badge of honor, right? That he's got this blue screen of death. And I just, it, 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 just really hammered home this idea that, you know, we're only seeing the skill and the talent of, of the good kids, right? And teachers do that a lot. And they also will would do things like give additional technology learning opportunities. There was a, there was a girl named Sumali um, who 
had the teacher's password to her laptop because she had fixed it so many times. So those were opportunities to be creative with technology in ways that other kids um, at that school just didn't have that kind of opportunity. So treating it as a reward, right? Only the good kids, only the kids who, and I've, I've seen other things like mathematics, becoming a gatekeeper or um, AP computer science, for example, um, all of those things are ways of saying, prove prove it to me that you um, have earned the right for this, you know, valued thing. Um, and so that's that's what I've seen in, in gatekeeping in terms of technology education. And so I provide some tools to really push back against that. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, that's a very uh, fascinating and, and comprehensive description. Uh, so... One of the great uh, strengths of your book, and a, a part of which I found particularly fascinating, is that you're able to translate all these findings into actual practical tools and, and advice to, to, to foster technology learning uh, habits in, in schools and in, within families and, and for students. Um, and you do, so, you, do, you do so by looking at uh, things these award-winning technology programs do to promote these, these, these habits. Uh, can you walk us through some of these examples and this this practical uh, guidelines that you uh, are able to sh suggest in the book? Yeah, so I'll I'll focus on just a couple because I know that there's it's quite an extensive like do this do this do this. Um, so the the first thing that I really hammer home is the idea that you cannot look at a person and know what they're capable of, right? So to use empirical evidence, of course, I'm going to say that as a researcher and as a sociologist, but also as a teacher, right, push back against those, those assumptions that you might hold and see, okay, so, so what can I learn about my students? And that the easiest way to do that, of course, is, and one of the reasons why I, I do, I'm skeptical of, of, of quantitative measures, um, for the for the biases that they can introduce and and make us feel like it's objective, but I, um, you know, I really worked against that when I was developing the digital adaptability scale. And so one of the things I recommend, of course, is to go ahead and use it. It takes five minutes to fill out. Have kids kids fill it out um, to see. Okay, so maybe I assumed a kid like Tomas what had no technological capabilities or maybe I didn't know anything about it. And so that that really quick measure can show you something that might have surprised you. You can also find out in that which kids need help with which habits, right? Some might be more developed um, than others. Um, I followed another kid who I call Raphael, who was a video gamer. And I thought, oh, he's gonna he's gonna be great at learning technology. But when I gave him something new to do, he struggled. And he also, on the digital adaptability scale, you know, scored himself kind of mid range. And I was a little surprised about that. Um, you know, just knowing how he was described by teachers, how he described himself as a gamer, um, I really thought he was gonna have. Um, much stronger habits. It turned out that he was kind of middle of the road. And so he could have had um, a lot more help in his technology learning. So, you know, positive assumptions and negative assumptions can be um, really, you can call them into question and, and look at it empirically with the measure, um, with the digital adaptability scale. Um, then the other things that I recommend are to teach kids the, the one sort of largest factor that I saw that was related to the habits, right? I didn't see gen I, I did see gender differences. I didn't see race or class. The big things that I that I saw um, that really um, were more strongly correlated with um, the development of the habits, one of the biggest things was just defining, what it means to be good with technology as habits, right? As like habits are central to that 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 idea of expertise, of technological expertise. And um, so kids who have that framework, um, so it's what um, uh, scholars call uh, an orienting belief, right? About learning in a particular area, what it means to be good at math, what it means to be good at history, et cetera, et cetera. Well, just having this idea of, of learning habits, that really helps kids. So that's one of the things that I recommend in terms of teaching. 
Um, and then also these programs, one of the things that they did, and one of the things that I saw in my survey that was super important was to have different learning experiences. And you can think to Raphael, that video gamer, he only really had one. He had it in, in quite a bit of depth, but it didn't help him to continually learn, right? So what he really needed and what I saw that really helped kids was to have one kind of technology activity, do another kind of technology activity, use another one. Um, so for example, the Digital Youth Network in Chicago, they have this approach that they call, you know, developing renaissance learners. And what they meant by that was doing just that, just having kids use one type of technology, another and another in the same project. So let's say that they were doing audio production, they were making an album. Well, they had to um, use all kinds of different tools in order to make the songs, um, to lay down tracks, to master it, et cetera, do the audio production part of it. Then they needed to um, create an album cover and maybe maybe a, a, um, a music video, right? So like all of these different things and all related to the same um, projects, but using different types of technology. And that's what's really going to help. It's not just getting really in-depth with one thing, but moving across technologies is when you really get to practice the habits. Um, I, I think I'll I'll just I'll I'll pause there, but of course there's all also that idea about um, including everyone and making sure that everyone has access to, especially you know in terms of equity, gender equity, in terms of access to those technology specific habits, um, but also um, really pushing back against the idea of competition, um, you know as our world is increasingly bound to, to and, and, and tied up in um, uh, technological systems, we really all need to understand how technology works and be able to, to use it well and continue to learn. Um, and so these are habits that, that everybody needs and we need to stop and really push back against um, that idea of competition and who's going to win in these um, technological races um, and, and to really make sure that everyone um, is included. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. And I, I really appreciate the, the focus on those those practical applications and in, 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 in guidelines for, for practitioners and, and policymakers and to those of us who are interested in, in, in technology and technology learning. So thank you for that. Uh, well, we've already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I wanted to ask just a couple of, of final uh, wrap up questions. So first, uh, where can listeners find more information about your book? So the easiest thing to do is to go to CassidyPuckett.com. So that's C-A-S-S-I-D-Y-P-U-C-K-E-T-T.com. There's a link um, to the University of Chicago Press website. So you can order the book. You can, um, on my website also, there's a downloadable digital adaptability scale and more information. Uh, so that's the best way to find out more information. Um, one thing that I would um, also note is that if you go through uh, University of Chicago Press website right now, and actually until the 22nd, I don't know when this is going to air, um, there is a 75% off uh, um, deal for ebooks. Um, so if you want the ebook version, it's very inexpensive at this point. <laughs> um, and I'm forgetting the the code for that, um, but I I've tweeted about it, and that's Cassidy Cody um, is my is my Twitter handle. Um, and the um, other way, if you want like the actual physical copy, there is a discount code for thirty percent off, and that is UCP New N E W. Um, so that's another way to get a discount on the book. Um, but the best thing to do is to, to um, go through the website. Wonderful. Thank you. And then our traditional final question uh, on the New Books Network is to ask authors, what other projects are you working on now or that you're maybe considering working in the future? So my project um, that I'm working on 
now is about medical technologies. And again, I'm looking at assumptions about technological skill and what that means for the access and use to new innovations that are supposed to help people. Um, I'm specifically looking at children and teens with diabetes and the kinds of devices that um, providers might prescribe or might not based on assumptions about whether or not they can use them well. And these are, the stakes are, are really high, right? So it's life or death. Um, the research literature shows that there's, you know, it's sort of maybe it's counterintuitive to think that innovation can exacerbate inequality, perhaps, um, right? You think that innovations might make, you know, lessen inequality, but in fact, they've been growing, um, especially for areas of chronic illness like diabetes. And so um, the research literature sort of makes this assumption that it's about skills. And of course, coming from my research, I think, I don't, I don't think that that could, could possibly be true. So I am really digging into that um, and trying to understand, okay, so why is it that um, there are these huge um, inequities and greater inequities by race and class when it comes to new innovations to manage chronic illness. Wonderful. That's, that's very interesting. I'm curious to, to hear what you find. Uh, well, Cassidy, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about the book Redefining Geek, Bias in the Five Hidden Habits of Tech-Saving Teens by Professor Cassidy Puckett and recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you for listening. Until next time.